This episode is sponsored by Mint Home Loans. With mortgage interest rates nearing all-time lows, now is the time to see what options you may qualify for. Make Mint Home Loans your trusted partner for all your mortgage needs. In today's times, your money matters. Shop local with Mint at 410-458-6847 for any home loan questions you may have. Welcome to Life's Tough. You can be tougher. I'm Dustin Planthold, your host. This is a show about life and purpose. It's about the stories that we all have. When you look at your own journey and you look at what you've been through, it is the basis for a movie and even the basis for a blockbuster miniseries. The guests we've had this past season were people that have changed the world. People that didn't give up. People that gave everything they had. Because in life, all it takes is all you got. Our next guest is Pastor David Ireland. David is founder and senior pastor of Christ Church, a 9,000-member multi-site congregation in North Jersey, representing over 70 nationalities. He's also the former diversity consultant to the National Basketball Association and has led chapel services for the New York Giants, New York Jets, and even the U.S. Pentagon. Let's welcome him on now. Dr. Ireland, welcome to Life's Tough. You can be tougher. My pleasure, Dustin. Thanks for the opportunity to speak to you and your audience. And you have quite the, the bio, but how did this all begin for you, Dr. Ireland? Like, were you, were you born a pastor? Were you born a doctor? Like, what, what happened? Talk about your journey. No, my journey was I was born in Jamaica, West Indies, and my family migrated to America when I was eight years old. Grew up in Rosedale, Queens, and then came to New Jersey when I was 16, when I started college, and then my academic trajectory just continued from there. I finished my first two degrees in engineering, mechanical, then environmental engineering, worked as an environmental engineer for about six years, then transitioned to ministry, went to seminary, and uh, planted a small church at the time called Christ Church with six people. My six wife and I made eight. people. So and, this was like, you, yeah. you guys were doing this like old school. This was, we're just going to put a group together and just talk. That's it. And then now, 34 years later, about 9,500 people from 70 different nationalities. 9,500 people. So what is that like for you to see? I mean, is it the, I had this crazy idea, I felt led to do it, and now look what, look what's happened. It it was crazy, Dustin, because I was an atheist, and uh, an atheist, (laughs) I didn't believe in God, and then I supported my atheism with my science background. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, everything everything shifted for me. It was a particular day, July 6, 1982, at 10 p.m. I know the date and time, because I remember sitting on my bed in my dormitory and just finished my degree in mechanical engineering, and I was so empty and unfulfilled, and I started thinking that there must be more to life than having a beautiful wife, nice house, lots of money, even though I had none of those things yeah. at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I just projected forward. I said, there must be more to life than this. And I, just, and I just, I didn't even know I was praying. I said, God, if you're real, change me. And that was the moment, July 6, 1982, at 10 p.m. in Teaneck, New Jersey, in the dormitory of Fairleigh Dickens University, I became a follower of Jesus Christ. But how did and that happen? Shifted. So kind of like, let's, let's kind of talk it through, because there are people in the world, many people that even tune into the show, 
you know, they have their own doubts, that they have their own stories where they'd say, well, how can, how can God allow that if there is a God? And then, well, you know, people are born into different families and indoctrination where you're born is what you're going to, you know, potentially is what you're going to believe. So how do you see through? How do you really know when, when you are being led or being talked to? I think, I mean, it's a great question. And as I mentioned before, I was an atheist and I used to read books by Plato, Socrates, and Immanuel Kant, Dante, Aristotle. Should I be afraid these are the books I read too, by the way? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm listening to these Eastern mystics as I'm reading and the more I read, the more I realized that they too were searching. But to answer your question is that in the heart of every human being, there's this search, this search for meaning in life, what's valuable, what's significance. What do I, what am I looking for? What's my purpose? And so I was searching and I was asking those questions, sometimes varying the way the question was framed, but that was my internal search going on. And I tried different things and none of those things fulfilled. And what fulfilled me then, it wasn't at the onset, mind you, because I was still fighting and, and not believing in a God that 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 cares and that can be personal and uh, through a, a year-long experience dustin is when i kept being confronted by christians about their faith and then i started to get attracted to being with them in sort of social circles because they weren't chasing the women they weren't uh smoking weed they were they were having more wholesome conversation and those other things became empty and unfulfilling to me and so i remember making that decision to you know to be a christ follower yeah. And everything shifted. Interesting, because I, I grew up, uh, so that my, my first father was a hardcore biker, white supremacist, and then my mother's boyfriend then became my dad, uh, and he was a pastor of a, a church organization called Calvary Chapel. Not sure if you're familiar with it or not. So, I am. So yes. growing up in that movement, I got to see the best of people and the worst of people. And so kind of the challenge for, for those that are trying to find this path is they don't always have the best role models. Yes, absolutely right, and that's why I always tell people don't get distracted by human fall, human faults, and the shortcomings of people. Because there is a God that cares, and when when we want to find out, we just simply, even if you don't believe in prayer, as I did, and now I've taken a hundred eighty degree turn, is that you can still say, God, if you're real, reveal yourself to me, and I think that. Let that let your questions and your searchings, and I'm speaking to your audience, let your questions and your searchings lead you to voice that kind of, of prayer or spiritual language openly, and then let's see what God does, because if God is true and if he's real, let him get a hold of you, but you have to then say, hey, if you're real, I want you to get a hold of me. Now, that, that's a great way of putting it. So in your, I would say, in your walk or, or now in your ministry, you've seen many lives be be changed, many lives be extended. I mean, that must be something every day that just makes you go, look at the peace people now have. Because uh, having interviewed now, I think I'm, I'm up to seven or eight billionaires that we've had or interviewed on the show or on my series of shows, that the thing I ask usually all of them is of the, all right, you've had the helicopter, you have had the castle, you've had the big beach house, you've had all that. Do you have your peace? And that is the thing that I find that most people search for. They don't know that's what they're looking for but they want their peace. And I asked Pat Robertson, one of our last guests, I said, how is it at 91 years old where you're near death? How do you have your peace? How could you not be afraid? And so I ask you the same question. How have you found your peace? I found my peace. Again, I refer back to that date of July 6, 1982 at 10 p.m. The questions that I was searching for answers, is there a God? 
What's my purpose? What's the, the purpose in life? What's life all about? Why am I here? Those questions, no longer am I looking for answers because I found my answers in my relationship with Christ. He actually changed me. I mean, I was a sarcastic, cynical, foul-mouthed atheist, and I was afraid of going on interviews when I graduated. <laughs> That's I a good way to put it. I like I that. Let out F-bombs that. And because that was, that was my normal speech. And then everything changed that very moment, that 10 p.m., that particular day. I mean, I, you know, I haven't uttered a profanity in, in almost 40 years now. It, I was changed, and I was changed from the inside out. And then my, my whole worldview was transformed. And one of the, the transforming points is the fact that I remember when I was 10 years old, my house was firebombed. Our family was one of the first black families to move into this area of New York called Rosedale in Queens. And I had no idea about prejudice coming from an island nation of Jamaica. Yeah. And uh, our house was firebombed. I was in the bedroom. I saw the Molotov cocktail yeah. explode. It burned part of the rear bedroom window oh, and, and the rear bedroom wall. And fortunately, the family was able to escape. And we had to have round-the-clock police surveillance for six months, 24 hours a day. Oh, my gosh, the, the, the trauma, the trauma yeah. that you were put through at a young age. Uh, and it it was severe. But one of the testimonials that I come out with and say, now I'm pastoring this congregation of some 9,500 people, as I mentioned, but what's more joyous to me is that's over 70 different nationalities. So I provide pastoral leadership to Asians, to whites, to Latinos, to Native Americans, to blacks, Caribbean, African Americans, uh, Africans. I mean, so... I have been changed. And so my worldview then is as a reconciler, and I even write about it in different books. My last book was One in Christ, you know, establishing walls, building walls of reconciliation, walls of multiculturalism. And so it's, you know, I'm just amazed that God changes people. That's the point I was bringing out. That, that's, a great way of, that's a great way of putting it. And yet you were able to take this moment in your life and use it in many ways as your fuel. And it, it, it is surprising because there is a lot of people in the world right now that are very angry, that are protesting for many different reasons. And some of the reasons that I can relate to and others that I, you know, we can't help but look at saying, why are you so mad? It's not as broken yet to the people that lived it, to the people that feel what they feel that is and has been their experience. You know, we, we talked to another guest recently about uh, police officers and and my interaction has been positive yet somebody else they might say dustin the only time was bad so of course you're going to have this takeaway and and that's so true i mean my interaction with police officers has also been positive i mean and uh, you know i'm african-american i'm i i do not have negative experience with them but i'm not suggesting that that is the norm for some, because there's not been, and evidence, historical evidence, proves us otherwise. That's right. The point I'm bringing out, though, is that we still have to then ask hard questions like, how do we become people that can live together in this in this diverse society, in this multiracial, multicultural, you know, multi-world view society which we live. Powerful question yeah. to ask. Because you're right, we all come from different backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, different cultures, many sometimes even different languages or different accents. Like, how do we get along? How do we, how do we unite the tribes, Dr. Island? I, I, and that's a great question. And one of the ways I say is that uh, people need cross-cultural coaching. Yeah, I, I work with the 
with a couple of the NFL teams over the years, the Giants and the Jets, working through their chaplain's office. And the average NFL team, Dustin, has 15 coaches. And I don't care what a person's favorite team is, whether the Dallas Cowboys or maybe New England Patriots, everybody in the NFL, every player, even those who sit the bench, are the best of the best of the best in the world in their sport. But yet they have coaches. And so what it tells me then is that people that are good at what they do or good at being a human being needs a coach. So the the need for a coach is, doesn't suggest that a person is inept or in, or ineffective. It means that they want to become more effective. And so cross-cultural coaching is the point I'm bringing out, is what we need. I love what John Wooden, the former uh, UCLA basketball coach, said. He said, a coach is someone who can give correction without causing resentment. And so when a person coaches another person cross-culturally, one of the ways you do that is by welcoming the confrontation. Because confrontation takes place on two levels. It can either be internal, because I see my behavior not aligning with my values, so I'm so I get confronted by that, or it can be external, that that someone else has to bring it to my attention. And <laughs> I've been married for a long time to the to the <laughs> same woman, thirty six years. That's a long time. And one of the things yeah <laughs> and no reflection on my age though. Yeah, you know, now you sound like you got your marriage though, man. You're still saying young. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Well, one of the things, I love my wife. One of the things I hate when she, what she does when she says to me in the sweetest way, honey, we need to talk. I hate those words because those words, <laughs> they say that there's something I yeah, want to bring to your attention absolutely. that you're not doing <laughs> or That's you're right. not doing enough. Yeah. So it's confrontation. The point I'm bringing out is that cross-cultural coaching, is it requires confrontation. Wow. Confrontation. So how do we do that in a respectful manner? I mean, right now... Again, kind of talking about current times around the world that there is an individual who feels what they feel and then the other person across from them feels what they feel. So how do we respect all opinions? Because in my world, I'd say, well, all opinions should matter, right? Yeah, that's so true. I always tell people, I said, there are ways that you do that. When you deal with the issue of conversation, cross-cultural conversation, the way you have a healthy one is when there's certain things you do and there's certain things you don't do. And so one of the things that you do is that you you do, you, you, I'm sorry, you do be thick-skinned, you don't be thin-skinned. Thin-skinned people get angry very easily. But you have to remember that a cross-racial conversation says, the person that I'm speaking to is not that well-versed in matters of multiculturalism or perhaps in my own culture, with my culture. Right. So I must be more thick-skinned, more accommodating, more gracious towards them rather than flying off the handle and taking things so personal. That's one of the keys I give. Another key is I say, do seek to be reconciled, don't simply seek to be right. Interesting. If I go into a conversation and my aim is to be right, I'm right, you're wrong, and I just want to win the argument or win out on my point, the relationship is still fragmented, still frayed, we're still disconnected, because my aim was wrong. When my aim, however, is reconciliation, I want to see a relationship with you restored. I want to see a, a multiracial bridge. I want the barriers removed, and I want a bridge to be erected between us. My aim is different. The only way I can be in a healthy marriage after 36 years, because our aim was reconciliation. Yeah, how did not you not right. blow up your marriage? I mean, 
looking at that we, you know, my, my wife always says to me, hey, Dustin, you, guess what? You get the best of me and you get the worst of me and I get the worst of you. Like I, I, I don't always get the best of you. And, and that's kind of been my wake up call. So I ask you again, how did you not blow up your marriage? There are a couple of ways. I think some problems are solvable and some are unsolvable. That means that I have to learn that the unsolvable problems, there's compromise. For example, our personalities are different. Our culture is different. I married uh, an African-American woman. I'm Jamaican. And so Jamaican culture is very much British. And so it's a very different culture, though we're of the same race, different culture. And so some things, and it's a problem meaning the culture is not a problem, but the way we may interact at times may reflect our culture. And so we have to then say, this is not going to change. My, my culture is not going to change. I'm, I am who I am. So another thing, so a solvable problem is something if I'm driving too fast. My wife says, honey, you drive too fast. That's a solvable problem. You could solve that. <laughs> but an unsolvable yeah. problem is your personality, your temperament, your culture. Those are things, those are areas where we have to compromise. And so I've learned to do that over the years because of, you know, I start from the premise, I love my wife, so let me then create a healthy environment where she will be able to feel and accept that love and then respond accordingly. Is it right for us to hold pastors to a higher standard? And how do you hold yourself accountable? Because that is, to me, you're, you're, you're a celebrity. You're, you really are. You're, you're the person out there in the limelight and we don't understand what it's like to be you, the pressure of the crown or the pressure of the position. So what's that like for you? Well, a couple of answers, uh, Justin. Dustin. One is that I'm sorry that you've had to go through that painful experience, but as a pastor, I hold myself accountable first to God. So I try to maintain a personal devotional life with God so it's not about me being a pastor. It's first me being a spiritual son. And when I have that relationship right, and I keep that healthy, then the horizontal relationship of my interacting with people maintains a modicum of health as well. So that's another thing. Second thing I do is I keep people around me that can hold me accountable. So I'm not a big shot. I, 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 so they don't look at me as a celebrity. They, they, they don't even know. I don't know, but what I've read and seen, you're kind of a big deal, and I'm doing that like an air quotes. Yeah, but I keep people around me that don't think that way. And I get around people that they have no context of what that means. You know, so this, it keeps me sober. For example, I, I always like to be a lifelong student, even though I have a PhD in organizational leadership. I, I'm back in school. I'm doing a postgraduate degree in, in social innovation at the University of Cambridge in England. Now, this is a big place and a big deal. Cambridge is ranked number two in the world. Yeah, but when that's, I went that, that's there, a pretty big, pretty big name there, Doc. <laughs> yeah, and so when I go there, though, nobody knows who David Ireland is. I got a tour, and they said, let me give you a tour of Cambridge. There are 31 colleges in the, in, in the university, and let me show you uh, the dorm room for Sir Isaac Newton. And <laughs> they point to Newton's dorm room. <laughs> You're and, kidding me. <laughs> this is where Newton, That's I'm it. serious. Now, are you like looking at yourself <laughs> going, uh, I can't believe yeah. I'm among giants right now. Exactly. So I told people, I said, look, if you're if you think you're a peacock, you better keep your feathers tucked in when you walk in well places said. where there are bigger peacocks around well, you. Well and said. so 
and that's I try to keep bigger peacocks around me so that my feather my feathers don't spread. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. I was invited to one of our guests' homes, and uh, another celebrity walked up. I go, he knows you, and he goes, yeah. Went, How does this like? What's this like that in your world you're a big deal, and then these other people walk in, and they're big deals. Like you've remained humble even with all the success, and that is something that is very hard to find. And if you don't do it, it's very dangerous. And pride is one of the most obnoxious kinds of emotions to everyone else except for the person who has it. Yeah. And uh, that's why it's so important to maintain this measure of humility and accountability and just be normal and just down to earth. And so you need people around you that keep you sober, so to speak, about who you are. Now that's, that's again, a gr- great way of putting it. So within your own ministry, I imagine that you've had to deal with conflict. You know, when when you are the the pastor here, the speaker, there's probably a lot of other people that along the way think they do a better job. Uh, they they like to give you their opinions of what they would do. How do you manage that? Because I imagine in the early days till now, probably remarkably different. Um, and how have you been able to avoid, I would say, the the bad press? Well, I mean, I thrive in conflict. <laughs> so. <laughs> You know, I look at myself as a spiritual firefighter. I just put out the fire of crisis <laughs> and, and, around, and around me. But and one of the ways I do that is I try not to take it personal, especially when you're dealing with the issue of leading men or leading leaders, leading the rich, the powerful, the famous, the smart, and people that may be much more successful than you in many respects. I take a posture of not taking it personal, particularly when people have to grow. And when you when they're growing and maturing and they make mistakes, it's almost like one's own children. I have two children, and they're adults now, but as they're growing, they're making mistakes like every other child, and I have to know how to give them space so they can, some things they have to work out by themselves, other things I have to intervene, and I have to know when. It's almost an art and a science to parenting, just as it is, it is in leadership. I have to know when to intervene, when to, to deal with this engaging this conflict or take a step back, let them work it out. Other times I have to just put boundaries in place and say these are the boundaries that I, you know, I don't need you to cross this boundary. If you're going to cross this boundary, then we're going to have problems. <laughs> and yeah. I know how to solve my problems. And so <laughs> I, have to, I have to, sometimes I have to be tough, but I try not to be. But if I don't, then... You can't lead thousands of people and be a pushover. Yeah, you, you can't allow people kind of dictate to, to you. Or So what's it been like to be, I don't know, if, if your kids were here talking about their dad, what's it been like for them? I mean, as your ministry has grown, as your organization's grown, um, they may not have always been your, your number one attention. And now as they're older, do you look back and what kind of happens to you as you see them and see where they are? Well, my wife and I, we, we did a a number of things really well, Dustin, in the, in the formative years of our children. We never farmed them off to others. We spent a lot of time. I went to ballet recitals. That's beautiful. I, I, to, I go there, too, so I got a lot of respect for you for that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I put my time in, so to speak. So now with my children as adults, one daughter's married, the other's still single. I, we have healthy relationships uh, because we invested in them. And so I didn't write books during those years. Uh, you know, I was frustrated that I wasn't able to do it, but I I didn't realize that the frustration of unfulfilled dreams was going to perfect 
and help to improve my writing abilities in terms of helping to laser laser my emotions, to clarify how I communicate, and to really hone in my writing skills. But so I saw I would say to parents that may have children that don't sacrifice your children on the altar of your career because you're gonna hurt. It's gonna hurt later on and on lots of levels. And when you invest your time in you will be able to fulfill your purpose when, as your children become more and more independent. And the investment and or even the frustration during those years of being unfulfilled is going to work, as I discovered, it's going to work grace in you and work skillfulness in you because it's amazing how those emotions never go to waste. Matt, that's, again, great, great way of putting it. So what are your dreams? What are your goals? I mean, what have they been and uh, how have you met them? Well, I have one goal that's ahead of me right now that I'm just salivating to tackle, and that is to really establish a center for racial and cultural reconciliation. How do I help leaders learn to become good at managing diversity, good at building organizations that are racially diverse in a healthy way? That's my that's my heart. That's my focus. That's what that's my, going to be my next social venture when I finish up uh, my program at uh, at Cambridge in 2021. So I'm going to launch that center and and raise up leaders that can deal with uh, multiculturalism in an effective way, as well as create what I would call a forum, a, a reconciliation court, where people can come that may have racially based challenges with someone else in their organization. They come to this quote-unquote reconciliation forum or court, and we help them work through their issues with reconciliation in mind. And so that's what's on my heart. That's my next big dream that I want to pursue and chase. That's a, that's a beautiful dream. Uh, when it comes to where you see the, the current times and where it's probably going to go, like I, I said to people a few times recently, this is only the beginning that people been stuck indoors due to the pandemic. They have not been getting the worst, that the best of the people in their lives, they've been getting the worst, and equally, they've been giving out the worst. So how do we guard our own heart? How do we keep our hearts from getting hard? Because again, there are people out there that no matter what you might think or I might think, still say, I, I hear you, I just don't believe that there is a God. I, I, I think that things happen based on chance. But what advice can you give them? How do they keep themselves from becoming bitter? How do they keep themselves, quite frankly, from, from choosing a side and then throwing bombs at the other side? Um, because we like to throw out titles like, well, that person's a racist. I go, no, that person just doesn't understand your culture and you don't understand theirs. And I think I agree with you. Great question. In fact, as the, the social prognosticators point us that our nation is becoming increasingly brown and so we're going through the browning of America, and whites will be a minority in year 2060. And so it's going to increasingly become problematic. And how do I, how do, what do I need to do? I think one is to really establish a more of a values-driven life. So whether a person chooses to believe in God or not, they still have values that they would embrace. And if they would allow values, values that help, to, values such as love your neighbors, you love yourself. Uh, values such as respect and honor people, regardless of the difference in beliefs or worldview. Those kinds of enduring values, if a person espouses them and says, and dust off their values and say, I'm going to live in a values-based way, it's going to make their life more meaningful and more, and, and, and more satisfying. Another perspective is that to have, because a lot of people are just interested in, okay, how can I be happy? Well, happy people are unselfish people. 
you know, I wrote a book years ago, The Secrets of uh, Satisfying Life, and uh, from social research I was able to unearth, one of the, the proofs is that people that live unselfishly are happier than people that live selfishly. And so if a person then says, I'm going to start living not just for myself, like Mother Teresa says, I have to live for others. The life is not worth living unless it's lived for others. That means others in mind. When I start thinking that way and living that way, my life becomes more fulfilling. But when I focus strictly on myself, my needs, my goals, my, my joys, my own, my own pet projects, then I'm so self-centered and selfish, nobody else matters, and then I'm, I'm unfulfilled. And so I tell people, live outwardly and live in a values-driven way. That's a great way of putting it. Uh, my nine-year-old asked me a question that I have been waiting to ask you, and he said, hey, Dad, who created God? So I'm going to throw that at you, Dr. Ireland, because <laughs> I struggled of the, um, he's like, but dad, you told me every creator, every creation needs a creator. So don't now change the rules of the game. So, so tell your nine year old, he needs to go play some Nintendo. Oh my gosh. I'm like, dude, can't you save that question for later? Like you're telling, cause he plays Minecraft, loves Minecraft. So he's creating this world. He's like, but dad, if I create a world, well then there's me. So so then who created the person that created this? And I, like, it's one of those, huh? Uh, ask, your, ask your mom. <laughs> the, the technical theological answer, Dustin, that you can relate to your son is that God is, he refers to himself as a self-existent one. That means he was always. And so there was no need for him to be created. And that is, is it? Is it tough, that answer? Yeah. Do I like that answer? No. But It's a hard, because you're a smart answer. guy, and I look at it and say, okay, with all the education, that is it this, again, this is my words, not, not yours, not the less sophisticated <laughs> way of dumbing it down for people like me. So is it like a, a giant blob, like somewhere that we can't see, that's all around us, like energy, and that controls things? Like, what do you think it is? No, 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 no. That, that's Star Trek. That's oh, okay, gotcha. I watched too much sci-fi. <laughs> <I've had. laughs> but, uh, but God is a self-existent one, but he's a personal God. He's a God that he feels, he thinks, he knows, he understands, he establishes, he has power, he has authority. So these are the attributes of God. And how one knows that is by, let's just take what's referred to as natural theology. You know, a person walks outside, they look at the sky, they look at the moon, they look at the stars, they look at the earth, they look at the trees, and they realize that this world is organized, that this world is not chaotic and, and erratic, that there's organization, there's a changing of the seasons. And so just that alone tells me that the natural order is a creator that is intelligent. And this intelligent creator that created us human beings, that's my worldview, that says that I have creatorial authorities and, and, and abilities that when, when my wife and I get together sexually, we can produce a child, and the child's going to look like both of us, a combination of the two of us. That tells me that there's a genius behind all of this. And I couldn't think of all, of all of that, and I don't know anyone else that can think of all of that, but I would tell your son that there's this genius who is invisible, but yet his actions are visible. Now, and, that, uh, and, and we see that. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, my nine-year-old, some of the things he's now coming home with or came home with from school, other comments, or what he's finding now and on even kids' YouTube or some of these others, you know, one of the other topics in our home, and, and I, and I kind of preface this with, uh, 
I'm not judgmental. The heart wants what the heart wants. But he said, hey, dad, LGBT, what does that mean? And I said, where did you, where did you see that, bud? Because I wasn't prepared to answer the question. I, I would have had to probably ask some experts around me, how do I explain this to him to, to not hurt him, to not hurt a group of people? Um, and he said, I saw it on something, in, which I then found out was, was Nickelodeon. It was a comment or some, I don't, something they put out that many times these marketing people around the world and these, these channels and um, uh, the, these stations, that they are now telling our kids things before we get to them. How do we deal with that? I mean, it's a tough world. I mean, and it's changing so quickly. And the only way we can parent children, particularly in, when it comes to the varied worldviews and the varied aspects of what some pockets within our society call normal or normative, even political views, I have to, as a parent then, when my children were in those formative years, teach them about values. And because they're going to face situations that can, I can never anticipate, but I have to let them know, make decisions based on your values and don't make decisions based on the pressures that come from anyone, but rather values that you feel that you can live with and represent you. And if, you, if it became public, you would not be embarrassed by it. That's a great and way so of putting are, it. And that's the way I, I have to guide people in making decisions. This way, when the questions change, and they will, <laughs> the way they arrive at the answer is still the same way. And so that's why I tell you know, children and also adults that interact with children quite a bit. Yeah, and as a young dad, so I've got a 9-year-old and 7-year-old, I'm trying to learn myself because there are many times where I think I knew something or I'm stuck on an opinion that a new variable or a new metric enters it, and then my opinions change quite a bit. And for my kids, that might be a little challenging because as I'm growing up, they're, they're seeing that. Um, and your kids have also now seen that of you. Uh, when I started the show, Dr. Ireland, I, I started with this concept and idea. So I think we're 51 or 52 episodes in now. Look at my producer. Now, 52 episodes in. That it started with this idea that all children matter. Because when I was a young man, they, my parents did not put my sister and I first. They, they looked out for themselves. And right or wrong, that was their story, their journey. But now we're in a world where people are protesting and still they're not putting all children first. I mean, all children matter. I mean, look at your own story that had these individuals have thought about all children matter, this wouldn't have happened. And, and I think you're so right. And I think that's a value system again. When you say all children matter, that means your actions, your behavior, your choices, all will reflect and come back to that value system. And, and I think it's so important. And when you even say to your children, nine and seven, and you say, sweetheart, you matter so much that as I learn, I may respond differently to you, but I'm learning because I'm learning how to be the best dad possible because you matter. And so they give you space and latitude so that even when I had to apologize to my children, you know, if I made, if I responded to, you know, in a way that was too curt or I didn't interact with them in a way that was sensitive to their personality that's different than mine, and I had to go back and eat humble pie and say, you know, sweetheart, daddy was wrong and all of that helps to shape them because they now say, my dad is big enough to apologize to me and I love him more. And so all those things, little things that one would think 
in the infancy of my fatherhood that I would think, man, I blew it. I realized I didn't blow it. It was that that humility or that that experience that helped me to really become a, a dad to my kids because they now say, okay, I can trust them. I can trust them with my emotions. That's, that's and beautiful. one of the things I learned, Dustin, one of the things I learned was that leadership is learned in the family. If I learn how to interact with my children, given the difference of personality, given the difference of maturity, and learn to interact with my wife in a way that's honor and respectful and give deference to our differences, man, I can take that to the broader arena. And that'll give me ability to lead and influence other people. And for them also to lead me, depends on whatever the relationship is. And so I just want to affirm you that as you as a young dad and all the other young dads and young moms listening, hey, stick with it and, and be honoring with your children because it's going to have great dividends in the years that follow. It, it is the most challenging thing that I think I've ever done. And I must tell you that my wife says quite a bit, she has three kids and I look at her like, are you, you're, you're really putting me in the mix. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm the only one in, in that, uh, in that boat, but many times I'm like the clown that enter- entertains the family. <laughs> and I think I've, I've been labeled with that same moniker as well. And, and I think that's one of the things that makes family life enjoyable is when you can bring a dimension of humor sure to it, and you know, and so and some lightness to it because life can be tough at times, and so we need that levity. So you know, I, I love that. That's what we say: life's tough, you can be tougher. Uh, so yeah. for those out there that want to learn a little bit more about you, Doctor Ireland, and want to be able to find you and need some encouragement, need some accountability, how can they get a hold of you? My website is David Ireland. Dot org. Ireland is spelled like the country. And you can just go on Google and just type that name in and all kinds of things will pop up. Even my latest book that's titled One in Christ, Bridging Racial and Cultural Divides. In that book, I take a coaching perspective and I come alongside of people. In fact, I used to function and serve as a diversity coach and consultant with the NBA. And so I came, I was the shortest guy in five square miles when I met with those big guys. And so I came alongside of them, not as a pastor, but as someone who said, I want to help you learn to get along with people that are different than you. And so Dustin, that's how they would find me, davidireland.org or social media that handles at David Ireland. And so they'll get me in every social media channel that way. That sounds great. Thank you so much for coming on. Life's tough. You could be tougher. For those who tuned in, that was Pastor David Ireland. David believes that humanity is God's highest order of creation, and that he made us in his image, which means we're designed to reflect God's character of love that embraces all humanity. If I could sum up Dr. Ireland, it would be that leaders don't create more followers. They create more leaders. So I ask you, and I challenge you, is that also your goal, to create leaders or to create followers. Thank you for tuning in to this very special edition. Life's tough. Pastor David Ireland, that man's tougher. <laughs>